<laughs> so um, we thought we would talk a little bit about, uh, since we've known each other quite a while, we thought we would talk a little bit about lineage and loving the Dharma. Because uh, I think I could speak for Howie saying she loves the Dharma and I love the Dharma. And actually, I think I could speak for a lot of you saying you love the Dharma. And so we want to just talk a little about lineage and a few other things that are pertinent today. Maybe a little bit about Father's Day, since it's Father's Day for those of us who are fathers and also for those of us who had a father. Right. It's Father's Day. And uh, and also it's Juneteenth weekend. And so we're going to see if we can weave that all in together or not. We'll see. And please, uh, and we'll, we'll save time for your questions, comments, anything you want to say about what we're saying. So please, if you have a question or comment, hold it till we're done and then we'll take your thoughts and go from there. Um, uh, so, and I sent Howie right before, I sent him a few questions that I've been thinking about. One of them was, what's the, your original lineage in Buddhism? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I could be glib and say, uh, boo-ish. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably true. <laughs> no, it, if you were... I have to say that my it was reassuring that that the language, the affect, the style of my original teachers was very familiar to me and certain kind of uh, shtick, you could say. Uh, and you know, I wouldn't really usually admit that that made a difference, but it did. There was a familiarity that made me very feel very safe. My boorish teachers, my teachers who were uh, came from a Jewish background and were also Dharma teachers. Uh -huh. And I think I know a few of them because uh, <laughs> they were also some of my first teachers. Although on my first retreat, which was with Jet, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you were teaching there. Maybe you'll tell me if I'm wrong because I, I associate you with all my early teachers. Right, because I sat a lot of retreats with you and Jack and James and all those people. But my first retreats was with Jack and Joseph and Sharon uh, in the desert at Yucca Valley. And I can't remember, were you, I think you were there also, yeah. And uh, yeah, so you were, you're part of my lineage of teachers. And, and you know, uh, I hope uh, I hope it's okay to say well done. <laughs> I hope it's true that, that it's um, really because um, everybody had a different impact on me in terms of lineage. And it's always interesting to see how different teachers impact one. And whether, you know, it was, especially my first retreat, I was working with Joseph Goldstein and uh, uh, actually, and uh, who else? Not Anna Douglas. I can't. Oh, Carol Wilson. And Carrie, yeah, and it was, oh, no, that wasn't the one you were on. I, yeah, but, um, but all of them have had an impact on me that is really 
heartfelt and meaningful. But Joseph, especially on that first retreat, because mm -hmm. I had a really hard retreat, and I've told this group before, and I and I'm going through the days waiting for them to ring the bell at every step, like just because I was in pain and uncomfortable and couldn't do it. And finally, at about the sixth or seventh day, I just vowed to sit still and not move. And and it kill it hurt like hell. And it hurt, it hurt, it hurt, but I stayed still, you know, for, for the early morning sitting for 45 minutes or an hour. And it was everything hurt, everything was killing me. And then uh, and then the bell rang and the pain went away and my knee went away and I went away and I couldn't stop being mindful. And it was ch changed my whole life. And um, and later that day, Joe, when I talked to Joseph and I said to him in a very in, in my total innocence I, and with this kind of voice, I said, am I going to be like this forever? You know, and he laughed and said, no, no, you, you things will change. But I want you to come on the three month course. That was the first thing he said. So anyhow, and I think you've done a few of the three month courses. <laughs> Yes, I have one moment. I've got to drink a little water. Sure, I'll drink with you. I also, even though my first retreats were with Ram Das and uh, Stephen Levine, where Stephen Levine introduced me to insight meditation. And I'll, I guess I'll tell a little bit of that story because Please. I was at what was called a mature ashram with Ram Das in the mountains of New Mexico. And he brought along two meditation teachers. One of them taught guided imagery, you know, climb a golden ladder and meet your spirit guides or whatever. And that was interesting. But the other one was Stephen Levine. And he invited everyone to just pay attention to their mind. And I had never paid attention to my mind. I'd never made that shift from being just carried along by the stream of consciousness to noticing it. And that that just that shift alone, I think it's the most liberating shift there is from relating from our mind to relating to our mind. Uh, and that was huge. And, and um, yeah, it became so fascinating that I couldn't, that drew me in so much that I didn't want to stop. Another thing at that same retreat that drew me in that made me not want to stop is that I noticed I was in a beautiful, pristine mountain environment and it couldn't have been more silent. And my mind was incredibly noisy. And I, I, the contrast between my mind, my mind stream and the outer environment was so severe that I knew that I was in a, in an, um, we'll put in a more casual sense, not in a technical sense, but in a casual sense, I was mentally ill which I think all of us are to a certain degree until we've worked with our mind. And that inspired me so much to, to work with my own craziness that, uh, that that led me to my next two 14 day retreats with Joseph Goldstein, where I cried my eyes out when I heard the first teaching of the Four Noble Truths. It felt like I, have, I was home. I felt so happy that someone was saying it uh, as it is, and uh, one thing led to another from there. So Joseph is definitely my root 
teacher, the one that really opened my heart, but, uh, but Stephen was also an inspiration. Beautiful. Yeah, really beautiful and fun to hear, uh, you know, because I know little bits of your background, but not everything. And it's for me, it's also interesting when I think about lineage, like who touched us, like who touched them also becomes part of the lineage, you know, because, you know, like Jack and Joseph had really a huge impact on me. And when I say Jack, Jack Cornfield, if anybody doesn't know Jack, um, and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, and um, and they practiced a lot with different people, especially Jack with Ajahn Chah. I feel like, oh, Ajahn Chah's in the room, you know, and no and and of you know of the highest order of Zen masters who wasn't a Zen master, but he was a Zen master, and uh, and Mahasi Sayadaw also, and just that kind of fierce, clear, this moment, you know, breath, and then keep going. And uh, yeah, and and for myself, then I also think of other teachers in Buddhism, especially in the Theravada, that have impacted me. Because when I think of Ajahn Chah, then I think of his lineage, and Ajahn Mun, or, or the different people who I've met and worked with over the years, like Ajahn Jumnian, who is totally fun to to practice with, and also, you know, Saito Utejaniya, of the different streams, and, uh, and, you know, and just, and everybody's part of the lineage that's here right now, which is me. No, that's why you're a treasure to your Sangha is because you carry the living, the living expression of all of those lineages, all those teachers, and, and it shouldn't be ever taken for granted, as far as I'm concerned, that, you know, the fact that you carry that and all that practice. And, and yeah, I, I, I think of it a little, I think of it a little different. It's lovely what you're saying, but I think of it as like, oh, they're carrying me here. And, and that's, <laughs> and it's just, I'm just the voice for something much bigger, which I know you know, but it's, it's part of what lineage means ultimately to me. Yeah, I think it's also really interesting to see what of those teachers that you, that carry you or you carry, yeah. what of those teachers really gets transmitted, what gets passed along and so, for yeah. example, when, you know, in sitting in the Theravada tradition, this, the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw, the, the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition of Theravada, I sat many, many long practice periods and practiced in Burma four years with, didn't practice in Burma for four years, but four years with Upandita Sayadaw, uh, who many yeah. of you have heard of, many of you haven't heard of. But uh, Sayadaw Upandita, was this very fierce kind of guy. And he would, he was considered the master of Stone Age psychology because he, <laughs> he, was the, he would play you. He would see your character type. And with me, he thought there was a little too much pride. And, and so he would just butter me up and tell me what a wonderful person I was, what a wonderful yogi. And nobody was getting it like me. And then as soon as he had me, 
then he would he would act like I was the biggest idiot that ever walked in the room and it and it showed me so much uh, how how pri- how praise and blame can affect the con- my consciousness and that was a huge impact but his most important teaching when he was um, when he was trying to tease out as you said earlier just this moment mm-hmm. part of his practice was to report exactly what you noticed and he just wanted the facts like in dragnet for all of you older folks here <laughs> just the facts and i would go in and i would report i noticed this i noted it and this is what happened to it and i would describe as clearly as i could exactly what was happening but somehow I would slip into a little bit of embellishment and it felt like this, or it, I started to get into my own personality around it. And one day I was feeling the pain of the, what's called Sankara Dukkha, the pain of life. Every sense door was being impinged upon and I just wanted, wanted it all to stop. And, and I didn't realize it, but I was busy no busy understanding dukkha busy understanding suffering and i went in and i made my description and i was kind of feeling proud that i had felt like i was dragging my body around and he looked at me and he said just see dukkha as dukkha and it it kind of woke me up and i realized oh there's such a difference between just what's happening and the embellishment that my mind adds to it and ever since then my radar for any elaboration on what's going on when somebody's trying to tell me it's usually story and it's often not just basically six experiences seeing hearing smelling tasting touching so that kind of thing gets passed on to person to person to person all these years there's more you know in that little bag it's it's beautiful because the upadita who i'd never practiced with uh, partly because I heard he was the most, the least user-friendly teacher that anybody knew. He was a tough guy, yeah. and he wasn't he wasn't telling stories like Jack Cornfield or anything like that. It was a different style of teaching and fierce. Yeah. And also, I love hearing how it woke you up. Yeah. And because I know you didn't stop there either right well it was it was actually his toughness and and my uh, aversive reaction to his stone age psychology style i I shouldn't say it in public but maybe i should (laughs) but anyway it was my reaction to that that made me actually uh, begin to feel some diminishment of faith in his methodology and his form and it opened me to to finding teachings in other flavors and other forms yeah and I think that's really important for people to to work with what really allows them to open or learn or understand or deepen. And then also to know when it's time to wait, maybe there's something more somewhere that it might not all be in one person or one method or one system. And, and that's really important for all of us to become our own teachers at some point in that way. So, and I just was, you know, in my uh, thinking about it, I was thinking about there were other 
Buddhist traditions that I know you've been involved with. Could you say a little bit about the other lineages in Buddhism you've been involved with? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I well, I've done. I've been. I've done a little bit of. I've done a couple Zen sashin, but I have been a uh, Vajrayana or uh, what's called Dzogchen or the more um, the Vajrayana lineage of Buddhism. I've been a student of Dzogchen for since 1989, mm -hmm. and it has run parallel to. Uh, to the Theravada tradition, and it's it's really points to the same reality, which can't really even be put in terms of lineage or words or forms. But it 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 did offer a language and a way of resonating with the with the um, indescribable uh, part of reality, a language of pointing to it that just. I found so beautiful and elegant and fun and uh, fresh and uh, great. And in fact, it's funny that we're, you're even asking me this because yeah. on the on my computer screen, I have a teaching from a local Dzogchen teacher named Anam Tupton that maybe yeah, some yeah, of you yeah, have yeah. practiced with and I'm sure Eugene has. But this particular practice, he says, very simply, you are consciousness and so am I. Mm -hmm. Consciousness is said to be groundless because it has no size, shape, or location. Some people think that consciousness is living in us. However, such a view is very limited in scope since this consciousness is all pervading. We live in it. We are it. It enjoys eternal play. Now and then consciousness forgets that its play is its own manifestation and gets lost in believing that it is separate from itself. That forgetfulness is the fundamental delusion that gives birth to all troubles, problems, struggles, and unending chain reactions. Since consciousness itself is not separate from enlightenment, consciousness being aware of itself can happen suddenly and break the chain created by our forgetfulness. Beautiful. The simple, Beautiful. so elegant. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, I have my own, you know, um, uh, forays into different Buddhist traditions and both Zen, as you said, although I still feel very, uh, I feel, even though I've did very little formal Zen practice, I feel totally influenced by Zen. I think the first Buddhist book I ever read was um, was um, um, there was a book of Zen stories. I can't remember Zen flesh, Zen, flesh, Zen bones, Zen bones, Zen bones. Yeah, and it was like, oh my God, who somebody knows about this stuff? And they were so fun. I also love that, and so I also love Suzuki Roshi because he was so a real person who had a wife and you know like a real life and didn't act like he was enlightened but he was totally enlightened not acting like he was enlightened and and i just and also as you know my wife practiced and and as people know is also authorized in that school and that tradition because i met her at uh, when she was a Zen monk in Tassajara. 
And it was fun to be able to have a romance with a Zen monk. I didn't even know that was possible. You don't do that in the Theravada with the monks. And, but also, and Thich Nhat Hanh too has such, such a big influence on my heart because he's so heartfelt and so beautiful in dealing with the dukkha of the world that he lived with and never losing his ground of being who he was and his practice. Um, yeah. And in Tibet, Tibetan practice too, I feel influenced by people. I've, I've actually met the Dalai Lama a couple of times, but, but just, just the beauty of their, his being has had a big impact on me. But I practice with Sokni Rinpoche and with Mingyur and, and, but it's somebody who I never met, but I went to his cave in Bhutan had a huge impact on me, which is uh, Longchenpa. And Longchenpa is just, and I actually thought about this before and I pulled out this quote from Longchenpa that is like one of my favorite Buddhist quotes of all time, which is about also about awareness. And he said, awareness is always refreshing itself, always newly arriving. You can neither obtain this awareness nor lose it. I mean, it's such a beautiful line. You can't obtain it and you can't lose it. He says, I salute the spontaneously perfect universal creativity, self-refreshing self awareness. Universal creativity as a teacher, a direct teaching that you do not need to strive for. I invoke the turning of the wheel of the, of the natural great perfection of spontaneous presence. And, you know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's better than chocolate cake. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. Just good food for the soul every which way. You know, what's very cool, you know, that you're alluding to also is that we don't have to have met some of these teachers and their teachings continue to be in some ways through their words, through their, the way their words were edited, at least, uh, a living transmission. And I, you know, Nisargadot from the Advaita tradition, where he says, nothing can make you happier than you are. Mm -hmm. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of, of being conscious, of conscious being. Mm. You know, just little, just little yeah. one-liners or Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah. You, you who are the richest person on earth, okay. who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. You know, just little, the poetry of these guys and you, and it, it's like a pointing out of your own nature. And if you're listening, you'll, you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah, no, beautiful, beautiful, both, both of those. And especially, I'm glad you mentioned Nisargadot because uh, one of the things I thought we might just mention is like practicing in lineages outside of Buddhism, because technically Nisargadot was not a Buddhist, Although our friend who spent time with him said he was the most enlightened person he ever met, our friend who is Buddhist. And, you know, and so I wonder what other 
Can you say a little bit about your other lineages, which I know you can? Well, yeah, well, I have to say that an Advaita Vedanta teacher named H.W. Punja was the, I would have to say he's the most, the most impactful person, person that I've ever met, the most awakened person I ever met, and the most, the person who, um, who stole my mind more than any other person. And I'm almost inclined to tell you a story of how he stole my mind, a couple little versions of sure. it, if it's not too out there. Yeah, even if it's out there, it can be, you know, yeah. we'll see if it's too out there. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of, of stepping out of our, the freedom to step out of our lineage, or whether you're pushed or whether you're just free to, whether it's just part of the creative expression of our lives. I, after I was with Upandita, I felt, um, because he, he was so hard on me, that I, and the way that he was pushing me wasn't so great for my temperament. I needed a little bit more easeful, more spacious. And I started to feel a bit diminished. And just being open to another tradition, I went to see this teacher in India. And I was feeling so much, though, from having practiced a lot that I wanted and this was in the middle of my daily life that I wanted nothing. It wasn't as though I was on a three month retreat and going through all the stages of insight and this, the classic stage of the urge for deliverance and then all the different things that can happen if you do a long, if you do long practice periods. There's a certain sequence that people go through. I was starting to go through those the classic sequences in the middle of my daily life where I wanted nothing more than to feel to be free. I, I found it everything else a little bit uninteresting. And so in that condition, I went to see this teacher named Punjaji. And I, when I arrived to see him, when I arrived to see him, he was very jovial. And that was already uh, very welcoming. But he said to me in our first conversation, why are you here? Why did you come to see me? And being a little bit conversant in the language of spirituality, I said to him, I know that the seeker and the sought, the seeker and what's being sought are the same. I know that the seeker and the sought are the same, but I've come halfway around the world to see you, so I must want something from you. And he looked at me with a, always with this kind of impish grin on his face, and he said, remove the seeker and remove the sought. And that may not sound like much to you, but for me, when I heard those words, remove the seeker and remove the sought, I went completely unconscious. It somehow bypassed my mind, my mind that had been calcified as the seeker looking for something, seeking for something. And I went unconscious. And then what brought me out of being unconscious, the next thing I knew, I heard this deep guttural laughter. 
And as I came into consciousness, I realized it was coming out of my own mouth. And somehow, so at, at that moment, somehow my mind just stopped and it was really quiet for a long time after that. Mm. And then I, it was kind of a matrix experience, but, I, but it was in that little interaction that I saw how the, the veil of identity that, that plagues us a lot. And not two days later, I had gotten really ill with him. This is the last thing I'll say. And I want to hear one of your stories if you're, <laughs> if you're open to it, since I'm putting myself out there. No, no, good, good, good. After that first conversation with him, I got extremely ill. And I was, I was almost delirious with whatever the local thing. It was in Hardwar, India, and I may have been from swimming in the Ganges. <clears throat> and I, while I was sick, he was sending me chunks of cheese to eat, and, and there was some little interaction. Finally, I felt well enough to what really felt like dragging my body down a few bridges and then over across the river to the little place that he was meeting with people. And I'll never forget that when I entered the street where Punjaji was living, I bought some bananas that I thought would be soothing on my stomach. And I was very sensitive and still really affected by the illness. And a, a monkey jumped out of a tree and stole my bananas. And I, I felt you know, really so, it felt so dramatic to me, the whole thing. And I finally dragged my body up to the little kuti where he was living. And he looked at me and he said, uh, how are you, how are you feeling? Because he had known that I was ill. He says, how are you feeling? And I said to him, uh, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me again and he said, where is sick? And when he said that, the whole identity of being sick melted away. And then there was this upsurge of vitality. I still had symptoms, but the, the identity of being sick was, had vanished. And I realized, oh my Lord, it's so easy when we're not well or something's wrong to adopt a whole view of ourself around it. And ever since that day, it's like my smell test for my own delusion is a little better. And, the, and, uh, and those who I'm, I have the good fortune to connect with, I can kind of see when they're a little bit identified with their story of being sick or whatever it might be. So that was, that was life changing to me. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, Howie, every which way. And of course, my favorite part is the monkey. <laughs> yeah, the, the monkey was right out of central casting. Oh, right, totally. No, it sounds like Punjaji sent him to take your bananas. <laughs> really. Uh, well, it's great, great to hear it. Thank you for sharing it, because it's really beautiful, I believe, for people to hear different ways we can wake up. And the one the one thing I wonder about about what you say was saying you went unconscious. And so and it really is a wondering, oh, did you go unconscious? Did you have a cessation experience? I had a cessation. Experience. Okay, 
it was that, there was an absence of consciousness no yeah. no consciousness of this more conventional reality yeah okay that's important just to clarify for people yeah. because that's something that can also happen after a really long retreat during that how he was talking about the progress of insight you go through these stages and then and then things cease right for however long and uh you know a moment or you don't know because there's no consciousness there right it ceases but but also to hear oh it can happen like that at any time really important because i know other people and not me me it's happened on retreats but other people who would happen like that and really beautiful to hear the the breadth of what it means of what's possible for consciousness to happen and both not happen mm. right so yeah 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 and you know and i mean i mean there's so many different things when i think about other lineages i have a lot of other lineages right being jewish is its own lineage for me and i've really learned so much and or being uh, in the creative world for so many years and mm -hmm. improvising that taught me so much about how to meditate because especially improv improvisation you're not thinking about what's going to happen or what happened it's like now is what's important in improvisation it's this moment and you're taking in everything and also you're not losing what's right here boom and you're just it's coming through you and um and also i feel very similar about athletics as being one of my practices mm -hmm. and uh and i don't i haven't swum in the ganges but i do swim in the bay every other day these and it's it's a total samadhi practice of being right there's no place else to be when you get in the cold water you're not thinking about anything else. Sometimes you're thinking about when the hell am I gonna get out of here? But mostly it's just like stroke, 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 and then not even thinking, just it's alive and you're doing it. Um, uh, and of course, you know, I'm also in the diamond approach. So that's a whole nother lineage that has changed my life totally. And in fact, I've had cessation experience on Buddhist retreats that were diamond approach cessation. By that I mean I went through that um what's the word I want? The 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 logos of the diamond approach unfolds in certain ways, just like the logos of the progress of inside. And and I was go I went through these stages of going into what they call the absolute in the diamond approach. And the absolute is a precursor to cessation in the diamond approach. Mm. And it it just went and it, you know, it just went into all this blackness and peace, which is part of the absolute peace, stillness, and then I disappeared. And it wasn't me doing anything, and then, you know, and then I came back. And I knew, but I knew it was good. And that was really a key thing for me, like about the deepest realizations. It's good. Even if I don't know why it's good, it doesn't matter. I just know the goodness of it. And that's been a very important part of my practice in general. I don't have to know all the answers about it. When I know it's good, 
it, it's beyond my mind thinking it's good. It's more everything knows it's good at that point. Mm. Anyhow, there's yeah, I wanted please. to just say one more thing about it's good. Yeah, the real I think one of the great blessings of being as having my root tradition being the Theravada tradition, the insight mm -hmm. meditation uh, tradition that came out of the Theravada is that its whole basis is harmlessness, is mm -hmm. it's non-harming, is ethical conduct, is mm -hmm. is uh, do no harm. And and as a community, that basis has been so prevalent that I, I think it's made it's it's uh, created so much safety and the goodness of that I think has been knowing so many other traditions where there there's so many problems and where where sila or shila or whatever that ethical conduct is not the basis is not right. the, the most yeah. important thing as a foundation it really you can really tell when it's not Totally. So, totally. And, and, you know, my first tradition pre-Buddhism was a guru who was kind of a new age Western guru known as Atmananda, who later changed his name to Zen Master Rama. Yes. Yeah, Rama. And I mean, and and it was great to be with him. And I learned a tremendous amount in one year because you just saw, oh, consciousness could go anywhere like that. And it was it was it was wild, and I liked it. But Sila, he didn't have it, and it was it was really great that he kicked me out of his group after a year because I wasn't devoted enough to him in the ways he wanted people to be devoted, and it wasn't the right thing for me. So 